Hey everyone, we are live from my backyard where I am smoking a brisket and some ribs. I am, I'm making meats now, smoking these meats here. Our little meat smoking. It's smoking, so I'm the meat chef. Yeah, someone asked me, do I smoke meat? Smoking meat, smoking these meats. Smoking meats earlier in the day. Smoking these meats, just set the charcoal up and you set the the wood chips up and then smoking meats, grilling, grilling meats, good smoky flavor. Smoke a brisket for like 12 hours. You smoke lemon chicken, smoke salmon, you'll love it. Bison sirloin, ribs and sausage. So I'm looking forward to, to that. <laughs> uh, today we got a brisket on the big guy and some pork ribs uh, on, on, uh, on the green egg. meat like a brisket. I got ribs in there. Finishing off the brisket and the ribs. And I'm just sitting in our backyard, <laughs> finishing off this brisket and these ribs. But hopefully for Canadian Thanksgiving, you get to eat a lot of brisket and ribs. How many of you guys are, are eating brisket and ribs tonight? Brisket and and ribs. They taste doubly better when um, when you hunted the animal yourself. So what are, what are you guys making for dinner? Brisket and ribs, I hope. Delicious. Brisket and ribs. The ribs and the brisket need to be eaten. I want to try your brisket. I want to try my brisket. It, it's a pretty tough cut of meat. The ribs and the brisket. Are you excited to have a rib tonight? <laughs> I want my baby back, baby back ribs. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Sweet Baby raised barbecue sauce. That is going on the ribs. Sweet Baby raised. Sweet Baby raised. with Sweet Baby raised. Sweet Baby raised is very good. Sweet Baby raised. Sweet baby rays. We have just applied the sweet baby rays. Sweet baby rays. Sweet baby rays. Maybe throw some sweet baby rays on the ribs and take it from there. She's waiting for her ribs. I mean, she she knows what's coming. And sweet baby rays. So that's uh, that's that's pretty good. Yeah. Who doesn't like ribs? Everyone, I mean, likes everyone, ribs. Loves everyone likes ribs. Everyone likes ribs. Excuse me. Yeah. No. This is. This is what Facebook Live is, is for, just hanging out while you're sitting in your backyard uh, waiting for your brisket and your ribs to finish smoking. Are you guys ready? Check this out. This is, oh yeah, that's, oh, wow. look at that. Pretty good. 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 See Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. Today's episode's a special episode. Uh, Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein, has uh, some technical difficulties on his end. So uh, I'm joined with my co-host and guest, Dan Held. Dan, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Pierre. I, I should give you the same honor that I give Bitstein and say, aka Dan Heddle. <laughs> right. it, uh, it's true. It is my name. I, uh, you, know, the, you know, someone told me there's a term for it when your name is your profession, like Baker. Yeah, yeah. I, f I forgot what it is, but there's a nice one word for that. I, I think I was meant to hodl. That <laughs> I was born to hodl. Makes sense. My my name in French is like, well, I guess it's kind of in English too, a rock. Um, both, both first and last name, actually. So um, I've got to find some way of tying it into Bitcoin, or I need to change professions and become a stonemason or something like that. <laughs> or you could become a stoner as well and move out to California. That, that's right up my alley, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
All right. So uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of big news, uh, and we're we're gonna try to cover it and give our hot takes on it. Um, I think that we should start with the biggest, which was uh, this announcement by Facebook that they and a lot of other big players are teaming up together to create their crypto project uh, called Libra or uh, Libra Coin, and uh, they've also got Calibra. So we'll kind of try to tease that apart. Um, and um, so basically, if I understand correctly, they're creating a stable coin, uh, which is going to be competing with other existing stable coins. But they also, because of the access they have, um, both through Facebook and through their, 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 the people they're partnering with this, like including MasterCard and Visa, uh, the idea is that this stable coin, unlike existing solutions, won't just be about helping people speculate on Bitcoin's price, which I think has been kind of the, the killer app for tethers and, uh, you know, for, for their competitors. Uh, they actually want this to be used as payment rails. So, yeah. um, Dan, like, do you, do you see this as a uh, threat to Bitcoin? I mean, do we see Visa as a competitor to gold? I, I just right. don't really see it as a competitor to, competitor to Bitcoin. I think it's actually a positive for Bitcoin because if you would have told me in 2012 that Facebook was going to come out with a coin backed by all these massive companies because Bitcoin had become so popular and the public became so aware of Bitcoin's success that they decided to ride on those coattails, I would be ecstatic. Um, if this increases and elevates people's perception of cryptocurrencies, or validate, validates it or legitimizes it, that's one step closer for them to becoming a hodler or a believer in Bitcoin. Right, for sure. And now their their criticism of Bitcoin is that it's too volatile. And <laughs> that's why, which to, yeah. to me it's like, all right, that's, that's plausible, but let's look at the sharp ratio, right? Like the returns and the volatility. But, you know, for payments rails, it makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, in my last article that I wrote, uh, uh, Bitcoin security is fine, which I think we'll touch on a little bit later. Satoshi speculated that or hypothesized that via speculation, Bitcoin's awareness will increase, that he built a viral loop into the core protocol, that as Bitcoin's value rises, because it has a 21 million hard cap, there is no supply increase when demand increases. So what that leads to is a, a somewhat of a situation where demand far outstrips supply and we see speculative bubbles. And Satoshi talks about this. He goes, well, as the value increases, more and more people become aware and more, more and more people try to take advantage of the increasing value, a.k.a. speculation and or, uh, you know, degenerate trading. Right. And that's 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 a good thing because he built Bitcoin's protocol in monetary policy to take advantage of one human trait he could rely on, which is greed. And as long as humans remained greedy he thought that this might become, you know, these speculative bubbles might increase Bitcoin's awareness, adoption, and utility. Yeah, because really, if we think about it, like Facebook wouldn't be able to get the press they're getting and eventually when they release the product, get any traction if they didn't already have the social network, right? And Bitcoin didn't start out with a social network. Satoshi Nakamoto was not the CEO of, you know, a, a massive... $500 billion company or whatever their, their market cap is today. So in a sense, like they, they, they don't need to worry about attracting that uh, speculative greed aspect of it to, to, to their system. Um, 
at the same time, like to me, that's an argument against Libra coin being successful, which totally. is that people are going to evaluate it the same way they evaluate Venmo or, you know, cash app on the fiat side, obviously. Yeah. I, I see it as a contender for PayPal, Venmo, oh, PayPal is Venmo <laughs> and cash app. Um, you know, just a kind of an easier, well, what's kind of weird is that you would need a separate currency than the U.S. dollar. That's going to be confusing for users, right? Uh, when, yeah. when so it's still going to be fluctuating. Even if it's not volatile like Bitcoin is, it's not going to be like $1 equals one Libra coin, from what I understand. Yeah, the problem is that people's unit of account isn't a basket of commodities right now, right? Like that would be the ideal stable coin is a basket of uh, currencies and commodities and maybe gold and, well, of course, Bitcoin. But... You know, in their perfect world, when they construct this basket, people's unit of account isn't that. So when the when the value fluctuates, they're going to be like, "Wait a second! I thought I had five U.S. dollars in my account, and now it's five fifty, which is good, but it's still confusing." And it has the same tax implications as with Bitcoin, right? Like, sure. my, minus minus the crazy upside and uh, the the roller coaster, right? Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but you still have to like technically report, uh, you know, every little capital gain or capital loss. I, I don't know if now what would be nice if, because Facebook is so big and they might be able to throw some lobbying money around, maybe carve out a little, uh, exception f that is broader than just Libra coin, right? Just for the entire crypto space. And then we can go use lightning and not have to worry about capital gains taxes. Well, I got to give Naraj props over at Coin Center. They've been working on that issue for a long time. I'm assuming they've probably talked to you. You've had a long history of attacks in, in the cryptocurrency space. Yeah, I think that they're definitely on the right path. My concern with Facebook is that Facebook is so politically unpopular that maybe they should stay away from that. And uh, otherwise, it's going to like cause. And we already saw, right, the backlash from politicians. Yeah. Yeah, I touched on this in my weekly. Uh, TV uh, on Block TV, I've got a weekly segment called Huddle with Huddle, which I, I crowdsource the name from my my Twitter followers. <laughs> um, How can people uh, tune into that? What's yeah? So every Tuesday uh, there'll be a video clip released on Block TV's Twitter account, and then I slice up the full clip and put a couple of pieces that I think were really good. You can watch the full clip on Block TV, uh, which okay. is actually really cool. I think it brings a level of professionalism to crypto, but I don't want to shill too much that on your show. No, no, please do. That's I, I have people on to uh, to show their their content and their media, um, and I, I definitely agree. Like what Michael and I have been joking about is like creating like a podcasting studio, so that it's not yeah. my home office in the background, and have yeah that same level of like because people do care about production quality when totally. you're trying to scale up in terms of being a you know media outlet. Right. And I think like for our narrative to propagate with the next wave of new Bitcoin holders, like it has to look good. It has to be great content. And this is a good way for me to kind of experiment with that while also helping out Block TV. And the reason why I brought it up um, <clears throat> was because I had a, the, my segment on Tuesday or you know, that, was, that was yesterday. I talked about uh, Facebook's current political position or sort of social position, like where they are and how this is this is a bigger move than just crypto i think people really focus on libra and they forget around, they forget about the bigger macro picture with facebook right so yeah. i've got a couple of buddies who work at facebook and there's an internal struggle right now going on between facebook and instagram to where mm -hmm. facebook has a, a higher ltv 
so lifetime value of the users who use Facebook, but users are churning out of Facebook and they're going to Instagram. And so in, like a lot of our friends in the millennial age group are doing that. Instagram is more pop is, 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 is growing very, very fast, but the LTV or lifetime value of the user is much lower. Why is that? Do they not put up enough ads or like what, what drives that lower? If I were to hypothesize what it might be, it's probably because there's very, very little desktop usage. And so mm -hmm. the number of uh, like ad slots and impressions that you get are much, much lower. That makes sense. Yeah. So I think, I think that that's kind of a critical shifting point. And, and by the way, Instagram and WhatsApp were acquisitions. Those weren't internal products. So you're looking at like, and that's why we saw all those Instagram executives leave. That was a big, big exodus of some early Instagram co-founders and employees. And I think that was around decision-making around how Instagram growth on Instagram should look relative to Facebook's growth and if that was cannibalizing it. What's tough for incumbents is that normally you have to cannibalize your existing business in order to survive. Like block, uh, you know, block, uh, blockbuster. I've heard too many block name companies. Yeah. Blockbuster with Netflix, you know, in order to succeed, they would have had to cannibalize their existing business. And so that's what's really tough. And I think Facebook is, is looking for that next big win. And WhatsApp and Instagram are going to be really, really good revenue drivers for them for a long time. But if you look out past five or 10 years, you know, what's that next big product? And I think, you know, with, as we know, money is a social network. And I think they realize that really well. And they go, we have a very, the biggest social network. Can we leverage this in a financial way? And I think that's a smart move. So I think that's kind of the bigger picture here. Um, in the current narrative, like the current narrative environment for Facebook as a company, like how they're perceived, I think it's a really tricky spot. Um, if Facebook, if this is perceived as innovative and cool, it might be the saving grace in terms of their recent data struggles. If it's perceived as another overreaching, you know, really data intensive and kind of, uh, you know, another ploy at Facebook, I'm using this in the term of what the public might perceive it as. You know, the public might perceive it as another overreaching step that face of Facebook trying to get more and more into their lives. Um, so yeah, I think it's a it's a really delicate position. It could, it could go either way. People could perceive it as good or, or bad. Right, and to me, the the commercial interest in it, in terms of how much um, like essentially value could be extracted from it, is enormous. For the same reasons that monetary premia have always been a source of value for sovereign entities. And I think I was kind of thinking of it from the perspective of like fiat used to be backed by gold and Librecoin is going to be backed by fiat, but eventually they're going to want to disconnect it entirely if they want to be able to really cash in on that senior revenue and yeah. be able to say, okay, well, now we're not 100% reserve. And so we're issuing more Libra coin, and that's just going to be a huge moneymaker. The, the trouble is that you're right, like with, with Facebook's reputation, but they're trying to mitigate it by, by having a big organization, essentially kind of a, a federated setup. I, I, I don't know, like I it seems as though people just are either seeing through that, if it really is a facade, or they're just not taking it as seriously as they should be uh, if this federation turns out to actually be a, a, a true, you know, 
uh, partnership of equals between all of these different entities. I think we have a little bit of like post tulip stress disorder to where we look at consortiums from 2015 and 2016. And there were so many consortiums yeah. that we've just kind of become desensitized to it. This one does feel quite a bit more real. Um, you know, now some of the names are kind of splashy, right? Like you've got Uber and Lyft in there. I mean, how many, what percentage of daily transactions in the US are from Uber and Lyft? Not that many. No. So, you know, those are more splashy, kind of like, let's let's pull on the millennial, the millennial heartstrings here. Um, you know, I'd be really interested to see what target market they go after first. So they they have some of the best marketing people in the world. They have some, they have a ton of money. They've got a ton of data. So if they want to market this product to a subset of users who might find value from it, I'd be really interested to see who they try first. Right. And I saw. I don't. I don't know if this was. I think this was like internal leaks from Facebook. But essentially, that they wanted to target com countries that are experiencing currency issues, and so it wouldn't necessarily be the U.S. first or Harvard yeah. University, you know, where Facebook started, but it really would be trying to figure out places where, um, because the local currency is crap, they want something more stable, and this is a, a viable alternative. Yeah, I, I definitely see that as a, the larger use case. And I, I think the embargo time as well for the press release was pretty early a.m. Eastern, right? It was like 5 a.m. Eastern which is extraordinarily early. Uh, and so I think that reflected, I, I heard that like covers more Asia and LATAM a little bit better. Um, and so, yeah, if I were to hypothesize like the, what they might do at first, it'd be in some country with currency issues. Now, I don't see how they're going to get around regulatory problems where, you know, let's say Argentina, right? Well, Argentina can weigh in on Apple electronic sales in Argentina and they can lobby the app store to block Facebook from being available in Argentina. Because the app store, when you distribute a, a, an iOS app, you have to select which countries it's available in. And those countries can lobby to ban certain apps. Interesting. So how about, let's, let's hypothesize this. These companies get it, and they go further into crypto anarchy. And so Apple's iOS builds in Tor, for example, as a kind of first class uh, network client. And then suddenly you can access Facebook. I think Facebook actually has a Tor website already. Um, so maybe they could try to circumvent things that way. It's super tricky. I used to head up App Store optimization for Uber. So good good luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it would it also be very, it would be very uh, aggressively like, anti-government where really they probably want a friendlier relationship rather than an antagonistic uh yeah yeah uh, they're under the lens right now with their privacy issues so exacerbating that problem with you know kyc aml issues or money you know money laundering i i, I view that as a net negative on the policy side and the regulatory side um you know and then if this is used in, in countries where they have currency issues well those governments are still very powerful and they can lobby the tech companies that are the, the gateways for mobile. Now on Android, you can install the APK, which is great. So you don't necessarily have the, the gatekeeping that Apple does. But I believe Apple in certain countries, I uh, believe they removed VPN apps mm. from yeah. availability in the app store. Speaking mm. of Apple, do you, do you think that this, if, if 
if this gets traction, that it will attract Google, Amazon, Apple to come in and try their own uh, and try to compete on, on this. I don't see why the most powerful payment processors in the world like Visa, MasterCard, uh, Amex, Apple, and Google are going to just roll over and let Facebook grab their market share. Yeah. You know, especially when like Apple and Google own, <laughs> they own all mobile, right? Like they could, they could theoretically remove Facebook from the App Store or Play Store. And, and Apple has been, you know, pretty, they've been developing Apple Pay quite a bit um, and integrating it into their operating system. And I've had good experiences with Apple yeah. Pay. Apple Pay is, uh, I think for like uh, Starbucks, it's pretty widely used as a percentage of transactions. And if we look at how Apple's been positioning Apple the company, which Apple's brand marketing is some of the best in the world. It's almost like, it's a Coca-Cola brand, right? Iconic. And they recently pivoted their narrative to privacy. And that, they must have spent billions researching this and understanding this. And so I think that's a really interesting play and so it looks like Apple will continue to double down on that privacy angle, which is antithetical to Facebook. So I don't really see them playing very nicely with Facebook in the long run. I think the, the turning point on privacy might have been the fappening when celebrity iCloud <laughs> accounts got hacked yeah. and uh, nudie pics leaked. I think that that really like would put a fire under your butt if you're working at Apple. It's like, okay, if we want if we want the trendsetters to be using Apple products, we can't be leaking their dick pics. It's all yeah. Uh, that's what the what, what that's what runs the world, right? Got to yeah. keep those pictures safe. I think um, who's that marketing guy out of NYU who who talks about the big tech companies all the time, uh, but sees it through the lens of um, guys trying to get laid and kind of the sexual angle of it of uh, uh, of these brands, but. Well, there was Dave McClure from 500 Startups, and he had uh, a product philosophy of a product needs to get you made, laid, or paid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure if that's the same person that we're talking about. No, no. Um, I'll, I'll remember his name, and I'll put him in the show notes. But uh, Scott, is it? Uh, anyway, he's okay. very bombastic. I, I like him. Uh, Scott Galloway. There we go. OK. I, I haven't heard of him, but. In any case, um, so it's going to attract competitors if it gets traction, right? Like that's the other thing too is that um, this this got released like before it's working, and whereas Bitcoin, like Satoshi got the code working and then he released the white paper, and we had this like very slow buildup, and like part of the um, the dynamic was that when Satoshi first released Bitcoin, it was completely centralized. And Satoshi could arbitrarily change the consensus rules for you know many months before more people came along, and there ended up you know being more code review, and then now there's more uh, like today it would be almost impossible. And we saw with Segway2x and all of this that you can't really force changes down now. Um, but at the beginning, it was very centralized, and I think that like. That's an, uh, something that Bitcoiners discount maybe too much is this idea of like these systems start out as centralized, but if they have the right design and and the founder is smart about things and kind of backs away from the project and says pseudonymous and all of this, these other, uh, you know, kind of criteria around it, it can become decentralized. Whereas yeah. now, because there's so much attention focused on crypto, it's 
almost impossible to, to have that approach. And if you want to play the virtue signaling card, which is how does the coin distribution look like, that's a critical issue. And Bitcoin, unlike any other cryptocurrency that will ever be created, had no value for a year and a half. And so those coins circulated freely through faucets and everything else. And there's no way to replicate that free uh, circulation of coins ever again. And so that would be a distinctly different, that, that alone, I think, for the ones who are worried about like Gini coefficient and distribution, Bitcoin has had the most fair distribution in terms of that initial circulation of coins that were worth zero. Yeah. Um, and do we know, well, in this case with, with the uh, Libra coin, I think that their approach is that people are just going to buy Libra coin from them uh, at a certain exchange rate that's essentially going to be set by them. I don't see how this would even be able to freely trade on its own um, since they would in inherently kind of be the, the gatekeepers of money flowing about, in and out of the system. Yeah, I think they talked about multiple gatekeepers. Okay. Uh, KYC AML gatekeepers. Um, but but sure um, in terms of the the issuer of the token, the, the kind of the, oh, yeah, yeah. the, the creator of it, um, ultimately it's not like Bitcoin where you have the, the distribution happening through the mining process here, or the creation of the token happening through the mining process. Although it's kind of weird to call it creation because it's more of a, I, I yeah, what, what would be a good word for it? Like unearthing of. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Bitcoin's proof of work is elegant, both in its capability of protecting the Bitcoin's network by building a wall of energy, but as well the production of new units of currency or the new, new minty new coins. Uh, to mint a new Bitcoin, there is no free lunch. It requires, you know, essentially the same amount of energy that it would, in terms of cost, that it would cost, that would, that would be the same cost of one, purchasing one on an exchange minus a small spread. So the production, the unforgeable costiness is a really cool feature of proof of work that I think a lot of people underappreciate. Um, and that's where obviously Libra doesn't have that. Yeah. Now, the what it does have, which Bitcoin doesn't have, is um, a Ethereum-like uh, programming language. And they decided to create their own. I thought this was like really um, odd in the sense that everyone is so focused on the payments aspect of it and of it competing with Bitcoin when it has this like this unexpected feature of hey we're also going to create like this rich scripting programming language inside of it which to me was like all right well you guys are really firing a broadside at, at ethereum here and uh the 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 response from the ethereum community was pretty defensive about how oh you know this is competing with eos this isn't competing with yeah ethereum. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what I saw the Ethereum community do, which was either deflect criticism and point at other DAP platforms, which I found pretty dis, disingenuous, um, or they said, you know, they would deflect and say, oh, well, it's not a threat to Ethereum or Bitcoin. And I'm like, well, don't lump us two together. Hmm. Uh, you know, they're sort of like intentionally mixing them together to just kind of like dilute the argument and dilute the impact that this has on their protocol. But yeah, if there's scripting in there and if there's different smart contracts that you can run on, on Libra, this certainly threatens some of Ethereum's use cases, You know, not necessarily all of them. I would say probably not a large percentage of them, but it th certainly threatens some. And it slowly chips away at two narratives in the crypto space that I think are really hard to defend now, which is like smart contract platform 
which the lowest cost in terms of like gas or, or fees, you know, people are trending to Tron in the US because of that. And two, for the cheap payments narrative, like Bcash and Litecoin and Dogecoin. XRP. XRP, this this really destroys XRP use case. I don't, I don't see how, I mean, if you believe in XRP, you've obviously thrown that all logic out the window. So I don't really, <laughs> don't really see how you, <laughs> uh, this really erodes any more of your confidence since you were never that. It's funny, this actually coincided with XRP doing yet another announcement uh, with MoneyGram, I think it was, which, and then I looked at MoneyGram and I was like, MoneyGram is like a failing business uh, for, yeah. for what I'm looking at here. So I don't know that you really want to be excited about this particular partnership. Both, uh, you know, both XRP or Ripple and Tron are going to be trying to buy their legitimacy. You know, Tron did it with, um, uh, Tron did it with, what's it called? Um, the Warren Buffett lunch or it's something else? Yeah, Warren Buffett lunch and BitTorrent. Which maybe yeah, we should talk right. about the Warren Buffett lunch. That'd be kind of fun. But uh, yeah, those two were like efforts to buy legitimacy, and they're going to continue to deploy capital as they need to bolster that narrative. Eventually, eventually, over years and years, people will realize, okay, nothing's happening, right? And, and then slowly fade away. Um, yeah, because I mean, like people say this all the time, but th these markets are driven by speculation, and I, I don't think that's like. I don't. I don't see that in the negative connotation that they have when they say it. But and I also just agree with them that that's true. Um, and then it's just a matter of about seeing if that speculation translates into quote unquote real use. Um, and now you know from the Bitcoiners' perspective and kind of the quote unquote store value perspective, it's like all right, well, holding is real use. But the people buying and trading Bitcoin, like they they are speculating on the pool of holders increasing, right? Yeah. Um, whereas people buying and selling Ethereum or these other DAP platforms, they have to be betting that they're going to be, they're going to be people holding those tokens so that they can, for example, create a stable coin like uh, maker. And right. that the maker aspect of it too, is under being challenged by, by a, Facebook, you know, stablecoin. Agreed. Yeah, all the stablecoins now are threatened by face by Facebook. Remember, I mean, it, it's so crazy to think about the narratives that have ebbed and flowed in crypto. In 2015, 2016, 2017, we had consortium coins or con like DLT private blockchain consortiums, and that that pretty much died out. Uh, then we had, you know, stablecoins in middle of 2018. That was the hot thing where everyone had a stablecoin. You get a stablecoin. You get a stablecoin. You get a stablecoin. It's not really a stable coin. It's a misnomer. It's a. It's more of a fiat fiat backed coin, um, and so Facebook and more intelligent, legitimate attempts at trying this are just magnitudes higher in terms of sophistication and incompetency than you know three guys in a garage doing. I'm not going to say maker, but one of these protocols, right? Yeah, and and some of them have even uh, abandoned it. I forget. Um, if it was basis or uh, one of those that raised quite a bit yeah. of money and then they just decided, hey, actually, we're giving the money back. We're not doing that. Yeah. And also they gave it back in the unit of account. So they gave it back in Bitcoin or Ethereum, not based on the dollar value of it when you invested. My my thought there was that they were part speculating. This is completely unfounded. I have nothing to back this up. But I think they speculated, as every other ICO did at the time 
with the value of Bitcoin and Ethereum that they raised in, and then after the value collapsed 80, 90%, then they were like, well, okay, this isn't, we can't use this to you know, really back this this uh, stable coin. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit of, uh, it's, it's almost kind of like uh, an option, right? Where they, they, they could uh, exercise it or not. And uh, since the strike price didn't get hit, they didn't exercise it, can't blame them. Well, I heard one of the founders got a million dollar payout. There you go. <laughs> um, and that that's 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 like the downfall to me of these ICOs, which is the complete lack of uh, investor protections. And I don't mean like the SEC intervening. I mean like when you are writing an investment contract, whether it's debt or equity, you put in provisions and you put oh. in conditions so that people don't pay themselves a million dollars and then just give the investor back the money. And that's the thing is like, yeah, you know, ICOs were under the guise of financial innovation. And I agree about financial innovation. And look, I'm a Bitcoiner. I don't I don't believe in the legitimacy of a lot of laws. Right. And so I like people to go and break the rules. I mean, I worked at Uber as well, which violated taxi laws across the world. I like that sort of thing. I'm not this stick in the mud Bitcoiner who's like, oh, I'm okay with breaking these laws, but not these ones. I agree with you. If a financial instrument is created, it should give investors a certain ownership over cash flows or other parts of the business. And ICOs written inside the contract was essentially you have no ownership. We have no obligation to deliver anything to you. And so that's not financial innovation at all. That's fraud. And, and it's like, I would have been a little bit more okay with it if investors had had protections like ownership or, you know, founders didn't invest fully on day one. Like, look, these are big things to ask. This is just baseline asking for, you know, operationally, you have to structure a company in a way that's going to succeed. If right. Founders, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I was about to say the success part is is key. Like if you say that you're on a mission and you want it to succeed, you have to set things up so that the incentives are aligned, not set things up with how much can I get away with? Right. right. Like right. That, <laughs> um, that, that part, I think, is kind of reveals a certain uh, lack of missionary zeal and maybe more of a mercenary mindset. Right. And I see ICOs intentionally try to intentionally try to muddy the waters where they go, wait, we're just like every other startup. And I'm like, no, hold on a second. You're coming up with new financial instruments that give investors no ownership. And then also you're doing some crazy stuff on your vesting schedule, which is not kosher and X, Y, Z. And then also like your founders are completely not capable of executing on this. It, it's, it's been a struggle because a lot of people can't decipher the two. A lot of people go, wait, wait, how's that fraud and how's a startup family not fraud? And the way that I phrase it is the delta, that it's a subjective line in the sand and it's the, the spread or the delta between expectations and delivery. So if I started a business to go build a hotel on the moon, a Dan Hotel, and you could buy a room, you know, is it possible that within the realm of physics that I could build that? Yes. Is it plausible? Extremely impossible. So me selling a ticket to that or me selling a room, I would argue is fraud. Um, and so that's where some of these as well, the delta between expectations and what they could possibly deliver were so large that my subjective line in the sand would definitely label that as fraud. Some people wouldn't, but I think 95% of investors on the street, when they actually understand what happened, would be like, yeah, that's totally fucked up.
Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other part is the distribution of it targeting unsophisticated real retail investors who are, they don't know anything about early stage investing. Uh, they don't have a good nose for figuring out what's completely implausible. And, you know, they, they don't have a track record of, of figuring these things out. Whereas um, in kind of the more traditional VC, like angel investor uh, situation, you're going for people who they specialize in identifying opportunities at a pre-revenue early stage. Um, right. And presumably, now we can debate this like forever of like, well, why can't a retail investor, you know, figure things out for themselves? Yeah, okay, sure. But uh, let's let's look at reality, which is division of labor. Yeah, yeah, people aren't specialized in the skill of choosing and picking founders and evaluating TAM and everything else, right? Like, I can't be simultaneously a sophisticated uh, real estate investor and private equity, you know, and VC being a subset of that and also be a uh, hedge fund. Like, I, yeah, yeah, you might, but you're, you, yeah, the specialization of those investing skills are very, very unique. And uh, yeah, I agree. I believe in freedom for people to be able to buy whatever they'd like. And so accredited investor laws need to change. However, there's still, yeah, there, there's a there's a delta between that where anyone, anyone can do whatever they like and what we might be good in terms of having some sort of review process. And then there's just like, uh, to, to me, it's not even like the, um, what kind of SEC legal reforms and whatnot. It's almost like just on a personal level of like, what do I want to be involved in and what do I want to be associated with? Like, I think that people should take those questions more seriously um, rather than just kind of throwing themselves at these things because it's crypto technology. You know, it's like, all right, well, Keep in mind that your reputation is going to be associated with this for quite a while. So maybe do a little more due diligence than just uh, uh, on its face, accepting the marketing that you're being fed. I used to think there is going to be some leveling out of this. I, I'm not sure if it's ever going to happen. I, uh, I kind of resigned myself to the fact that almost everyone will get away with it. Yeah, well, fair. Uh, although the, the thing that will happen and has happened uh, Dan, they're not going to get invited to the Bitcoin 2019 conference in San Francisco. That's uh, right. That's and right. in fact, I found it interesting the amount of uh, controversy there was on Twitter from people like Eric Voorhees or um, Jihan Wu yeah. of them being invited, where really for them individually, you could make a strong argument that they should be at a Bitcoin conference. Like why, you know, I understand the, the past and all the controversy there, um, but uh, it, it does show that like Bitcoiners are going to be very um, disagreeable and discerning when it comes to who they're going to want to associate with going forward. And so even if it's the case that, yeah, you know, scammers are always going to be able to hang out with scammers, that's fine. But uh, it's going to be hard for them to associate with um, what I consider to be the people who are in this for the right reasons uh, with, with the Bitcoiners. Yeah, I think, you know, like, for example, Eric, I really respect Eric a lot. In fact, he's one of the best executors on products in the space. He was the first acquisition, all Bitcoin acquisition, and he's also willing to push the thresholds of what, legal, what is legal. So he's got, I, re I really respect Eric a lot. What he is on Twitter, he does, he's gotten the backlash of when you anger the largest user base in the whole space, 
And I don't think he's really realized what that means. Like, I don't think he's really like comprehended what that means. He's just lashed out and said maximalist a bunch of times. I don't think he's really internalized. Like, yeah, you just angered one of the biggest user bases in the space. I don't think it should be like a, a popularity contest thing. Like, I, I don't think that Eric should, you know, feel a need to please everyone. Sure. Um, but at the same time, like, it's a little tone deaf to, to, to tweet out what he tweets about Bitcoin maximalists and whatnot. Yeah. And then um, kind of think that, oh, well, they're responding to this because they don't like me. Yeah, or that they're irrational. Right. Well, no, you're like intentionally angering them, and also you you still miss the point. And yeah, there's there, and with every one of his tweets, there's always a legitimate debate to be had, right? Like there are good arguments on both sides, and it's awesome to see people go back and forth on them. But it's not helpful for the audience when uh, when the substance is not getting discussed, and instead, kind of the um, cultural problems. I, I don't even know how to describe it, but the interpersonal issues are discussed. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, he got the, you know, he was on the wrong side of the Civil War and definitely got some flack from that. Much well-deserved. Um, but yeah, he he's, he definitely needs to come back around to realizing like Bitcoiners aren't going away. He has to deal with this problem. Not, he doesn't have to deal with the problem. He has to deal with the problem that he created. Uh, yeah, and, and it's also the case, I think, that the number of Bitcoiners who, let's say, are vocal about their their views on Bitcoin and on Twitter, I think it's growing. And it grew through the cycle. And I actually noticed, um, you know, as we were going down in this bear market, a lot of people who had been sold on altcoins during the 2017 bull market coming back to Bitcoin and coming back to Bitcoin with kind of um, a level of energy that we're not used to and a kind of um, animosity towards the people who had promoted altcoins to, to them. And they kind of felt like they had been swindled in some cases. And so they definitely have like uh, more edginess to them than than. Even like I've always considered myself to be toxic. There are people who've really like outdone me on, on Twitter of like uh, s saying things with a tone that goes beyond even what I would use. Yeah, I mean, look, I uh, so me, <laughs> me, Peter McCormick and Safedine were talking about this in Munich at dinner, and uh, so we looked at our block versus mute ratios, <laughs> and uh, they they do a lot more blocking than muting. And I do the opposite. I do a lot more muting than blocking because I'd like to propagate my message. And by muting them, I can continue to propagate it. Um, but, you know, it's I have to mute about 40 people a day. It's uh, And some of those are like Bitcoiners, too. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's, there's assholes everywhere, right? And I think I found a bunch on the Ethereum side in particular, especially the Bcash side. Um, they really hate my store of value. <laughs> tweet. I, I'm, I'm labeled a high priest of the uh, yeah. core um, over on, uh, I, for, for fun, I go to the RBTC subreddit, which is hilarious, by the way. And uh, sometimes I go in there and I troll because they'll have like threads on me. And then I, I'm like, hey, guys. Dan What's Heller. up? You guys <laughs> have some questions? <laughs> yeah. Peter, uh, does that. Peter does that too. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, there's some people that are really nasty. Um, I've been in the space for seven years, but like, it's, uh, you know, it's just uncalled for. There's being assholes, right? And there's assholes everywhere. I, I recently did an amnesty where I unblocked and unmuted everyone. 
Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> and, um, it was interesting. Like, uh, I think that I think that Twitter should become more sophisticated in how the and more granular in the controls they give you. I think you should be able to block someone or mute someone for a day, right? Uh, kind of yeah. time box it because um, people have bad days. It's okay. Like I get it. Sure. Uh, you know, like you rolled out of bed on the wrong side. You didn't have your coffee. You're trying to quit cigarettes. Uh, you're gonna like get into it on Twitter in an unproductive manner and yeah. uh, non-constructive mm -hmm. manner. That's fine. I think that um, Twitter should be uh, a little more having in mind that humans are fallible and uh, humans need uh, grace and forgiveness uh, and kind of build that into the product. You should check out the mute function because the new part of the mute function is that a muted response still shows up in your feed like as a reply to your tweet and you can choose to view it. And so I feel like that's a little bit nicer because then I can see what they're saying. And if they're like being fine and they're not being assholes again, I can unmute them. Versus if you block them, it's like, it's off forever. Yeah, yeah. It's a little hard for me. But if I mute someone and they continually troll my feed, I'm gonna block you. And if they're a BSV or. Well, what I don't like about the block is that they can, and this is actually, this was Craig Wright's criticism of the block. Uh, they can still see your tweet uh, by, you know, opening up a uh, incognito window or whatever. Um, what, what, what would be interesting from a Twitter product perspective would be having a, like right now you can lock your account so that anyone who's not following you can't see it. I think they should have an in-between where if you're not logged in, you can't see it. So that you can't just pop open an incognito window and still see the tweet. Um, but then it kind of gets into like, what kind of product does Twitter want to be sure. uh, beyond just accommodating uh, our ability to uh, you know, create echo chambers? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty deep product decision because tweets can be embedded in web. Oh, yeah. And so like, if all of a sudden, like a good portion of tweets can't be embedded, then Twitter loses out on tons and tons of impressions that are outside of the product. Yeah, I don't envy the product managers at, at Twitter. It seems like a very challenging job that they've got. Yeah, as a power user of Twitter, I'm not exactly sure what they're doing, but I, uh, I assume there's very smart people working on these issues and that there's a lot of trade-offs that were made. And, and that, That's what I think it is. It's like Bitcoin. It's like you can come to Twitter, you can come to Bitcoin and be like, here's how to fix it, you know, lower the yeah. block limit or block or the block times, you know, have <laughs> blocks uh get rid of the character limit get rid of the block size limit like they they understand the kind of the repercussions of each of these trade-offs and so it looks like they're not doing anything um but yeah it's a it's a tough job <laughs> yeah i've been at a big big tech company headquarters i know that things these things take time and that they're usually very very carefully considered and a b tested yeah the other part uh, that has gotten some some questions about Twitter in relation to Bitcoin is uh, Jack Dorsey's interest in Lightning, and so like some people have been talking about integrating, you know, Twitter and Lightning. And I know you worked at ChangeTip, so like I know that I know your view on this is is pretty skeptical. Uh, but do you, do you have um, if 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 someone put a gun to your head and was like, we've got to do something with Lightning on Twitter? Uh, what what would what would be something that you would suggest? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
you know, we did this in 2015, which is a long time ago. So, you know, four years ago is a long time. I don't think a lot of people understand how long ago that was. So four years ago, I think people's experience on mobile and web with different social media products was a lot different. Um, so now I think people are much more comfortable. You know, if I were to have to choose, like, uh, how do I how do I get someone to use it, or what feature would I implement on Twitter using Lightning? I, I guess um, what what feature would be the the first step in in terms of like why would we need payments in Twitter really? And like so, one one idea would be like, okay, well, if you have a protected account, you can charge people to follow you, so that essentially it's kind of a subscription service where yeah. you get premium content. That's pretty brilliant. I like that. Yeah, because they could have kind of replaced Patreon's model uh, embedded in Twitter. So that would be a good one. I could see the, the, the crowd effect that you feel with Twitter is really, really powerful, um, especially if you're a big influencer. When you tweet and you have like a couple thousand favorites and you know like a half a million people saw that tweet, that's pretty cool. So if you could do like a crowdfunding mechanism, like or hey. Even like um, greasing the wheels of the advertising. Like today, you off kind of offline outside of Twitter, you can negotiate like, all right, if you pay me 500 bucks, I'll retweet this or I'll yeah. tweet that and I'll endorse this. If they could kind of create a influencer marketplace, maybe, a, and have it be borderless by using Lightning. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, I looked at Twitter influencer tools. There's not a, there's not a lot. <laughs> that is, the user base isn't large enough compared to like Instagram and, and other types of, uh, and YouTube. So it. I think Twitter's kind of lost the influencer route, uh, but I think crowdfunding is really interesting, especially if like if you favorited it, it would add a, a dollar or it'd be explicit around how much you're adding. Um, I mean, imagine how much money you could raise in a matter, like say Peter McCormick's defense fund against uh, Craig Wright. Um, Shitoshi is his, uh, that's, his <laughs> that's his formal name. Um, yeah, imagine how much you could crowdfund with that. And he, Twitter plus GoFundMe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Twitter plus GoFundMe, because you feel like you're part of something, and that I think is really, really impactful. Facebook and doesn't. Others can it. see that you're a part of something. I think is exactly part of the equation as well. There. The yeah. And social. It, it, exactly. Yeah, the social elements and the, the social signaling of you participating would be really, really big. So I, I see that as like a really cool way to do it. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of, I, I think values under a dollar as well don't fall under certain like tax issues or KYC AML issues. So you might be able to start to move money around in a way to where like users might not have to KYC AML in order to like donate a dollar. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not the expert on that and I'm kind of <laughs> talking to my ass there. Yeah, well, um, I think the, I, because they're gonna have, they're gonna, I don't know if they're going to have pressure to integrate it from management. I, I don't know. I don't know if, if, um, if, if, because we know that Jack Dorsey was kind of putting pressure on Square to, to implement Bitcoin in the Cash App and kind of leading that from the top and it, um, because of his personal, you know, fascination with Bitcoin. Um, I don't know that he would necessarily want to intervene in the product development uh, side on, on Twitter where it's maybe a little, a little harder to make the case because it's yeah. very easy, right? Like, and hey, I think Jack Dorsey, along with his like circle of trusted advisor advisors, including like Miles Sutter, who's a really critical advisor for him, 
Um, I think he knows really well what the product market fit for Bitcoin is right now, which is more speculation, store value. And, you know, certainly you could integrate it into square, into square terminals, but there's only maybe 20, 25 million hodlers in the whole world. So it's not really that big of a deal. Um, and maybe in the next speculative bubble, maybe the one after that, Twitter and Square makes more sense in terms of integrations for Bitcoin. Um, look, this is coming from a guy who loves Bitcoin, right? I just think practically, you know, from a user experience perspective and the amount of users that could potentially use it, you gotta be, we, got, we have to be realistic. Um, and so I think, pretty early. I mean, uh, it, yeah. Lightning Labs just came out with uh, their latest preview. Um, so you can be on mainnet on, on mobile. So things are warming up, but it's not going to be uh, in the imminent future. I think yeah, that's... We're maybe, years away. I'm sorry? We're, we're years away. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's always talked about in tech of the problem of being too early, uh, which is it's just so common. Um, and in any case, uh, let's, let's get to your article. <laughs> Bitcoin security is fine. Um, <laughs> okay. And I, I, I liked it a lot. I, I remember you telling me about it at the uh, steak dinner before consensus. Uh, uh, I had a great time at the dinner. Thank you. It was a, uh set next to some really interesting people. Awesome. Yeah, I think that meeting Bitcoiners in real life uh, was something that I had underrated uh, beforehand. Um, and I think I see a lot of people poo-poo it on Twitter of like, oh, I, I don't need to see people in real life. <laughs> it's a completely different experience. And um, Bitcoin selects for, I think, like some of the most interesting people uh, in in our society, so getting them in a room, you know, of like thirty people or however many, you're going to have interesting interactions. Yeah, I was one of the first dozen people at the Bitcoin Meetup group in San Francisco in January 2013, and I think that was really core to developing like a community, like a sense of community, a sense of belonging, and to shake hands with some of the biggest, some of the some of the billionaires in the space, um, and to hang out and have a have a PBR with them, right? And so I think that's super critical. And I try to go to uh, quite a few meetups, dinners, happy hours during the week. And that's the reason why I pay for my rent in San Francisco is the social network. And yeah. same, when I go to these conferences, most of the time I spend at the time where I'm out there having meetings with everyone who flew into town during the day and then happy hours and dinners at night. Because increasing your surface area and a number of handshakes and, and, and hellos now that you've had that moment in person, it changes everything. My role is business development. So obviously I over-index on that versus maybe say an engineer or someone else. But I think it's really valuable. And part of what I feel in 2019 and 2020 is I want to bring that sense of community back to Bitcoin in San Francisco, the one that I felt, to really have people feel warm and excited again about Bitcoin. And so I've started to do, do that with a dinner series out here, which is it's kind of a private dinner series. Uh, but then I want to port some of that experience and learning over to a meetup uh, and really kind of reinvigorate the Bitcoin meetup scene. Yeah, something I've been thinking about is um, I don't like the meetup uh, application, the actual meetup.com website from like a product perspective. I think that there's like, there's so many, as, as a meetup administrator, there's so many like pieces of friction and it doesn't really like I, I, I do kind of want to screen who signs up and I, I do want to be able to select like 
essentially have people apply and then approve them or say no. And like one of the example of what I don't like about meetup.com is if you say no, it emails them and like tells them like, and then it's like, do you want to give them a reason for why you said no? It's like, can I just have like an ignore button so that it's just, okay, let's not. And I understand that's kind of shitty, but um, it's less shitty than them getting a rejection letter in their email inbox, which, cool. yeah. Um, and then on the other side of like, I've used Eventbrite for uh, organizing events and um, essentially being able to aggregate the checks so that it's not 30 oh, people yeah. putting down a credit card uh, and people just pay me up front and then I pay the bill at the end of the night. And that also has a lot of friction to it. Um, I just I just went through that with uh, our dinner. So yeah. we use this, uh, the, you know, otherwise I have to go hound people down for Venmo and Bitcoin payments. And Eventbrite's really great. It, it's still really, really clumsy. I, I was surprised how bad it is on the organizer side. Like it, it's really hard to use. It's like, do you want to download a PDF or like, uh, it, there's just like oh. weird menus and stuff where I'm just trying to get a normal like table of the attendees. Can I just get yeah. that? I don't oh, need yeah. to export it to CSV. Right. Yeah. The attendee list only shows you the 10, the 10 most latest ticket purchases. And then the rest you have to like click more. And then those are broken out into like this weird ass, you know, larger section per ticket purchaser. And I'm like, why would you do that? Why don't you just paginate it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've been thinking what I really want to see is a, a, a meetup and Eventbrite mashup on BTC pay server that I can just host myself and it's open source. So I can kind of fix things that are, you know, weird like that. Um, so that's like, that, that's the frustrating part of having to deal with a proprietary platform as me as a software developer. It's like, if I see something I don't like, um, I like it when it's open source and I can just go in and tweak it and then submit a pull request. And then they're like, all right, yeah, sure. You know, let's, let's merge it in. Um, but, and then also obviously that would enable uh, Bitcoin payments in it as well, which for people attending these dinners, like odds are they are Bitcoin holders. And that might actually be <laughs> yeah. a way of screening out uh, people who are not uh, Bitcoiners. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm a hodler type of Bitcoiner. So if a Bitcoiner wants to give me their dirty fiat, I understand. I, I like to hodl my coins, but if they want to spend their Bitcoin, I understand that too. Uh, so either the event rate charges a lot. Uh, the processing fee, I think, is like three and a half percent or something, which is ridiculous. Yeah, you can, you can downgrade it to two and a half percent. You have to, you, you can go lower, but it downgrades your features. Right, and my most frustrating experience with Eventbrite was. Um, I received a 1099 uh, because I had done so much business through them and oh, their their number was incorrect. Uh, it way overstated how much revenue I'd gotten through them. And so I was like, well, how did they come to this number? So I contact their customer support and I'm like, can you provide the support that would allow me to reconcile this number with my yeah. own records? Because we have like a huge mismatch. Uh, they would. They didn't. They would not provide the the support. They wouldn't provide the 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 calculation that they made, which is bizarre. And yeah. they were like, "Look, the reason it's different is probably because of refunds." It's like, all right. So how do I how do yeah. I figure that out? And what do I tell the IRS? Because do I tell the IRS 
um, no, like Eventbrite is wrong. I'm right. And then I, I look up on how to like dispute a 1099. Oh, I've got to get like a tax lawyer. Like it's, a, I'm really crazy. glad we're having this conversation. You know, we just tried it out for the first time for the last dinner. I mean, you know, it was like, it was in aggregate, it was a couple thousand dollars. So man, I, now, now this makes me want to go back to the old Venmo and, and using my, uh, you know, just a Bitcoin wallet. Yeah, and that's where it's like, all right, if we have a solution with BTC Pay Server, like my self-hosted open source solution is not going to go out and send a false 1099 to the IRS and that like create a giant nightmare. Headache. And I'm not trying to evade taxes. It's no. just that the reporting is wrong. <laughs> yeah, how do you just speed a 1099? Oh, geez. I mean, anyways, we, we should yeah. probably get to more Bitcoin-focused topics here. Yeah. Hey, this is Bitcoin focus, man. This is this True. is the privacy part of Bitcoin, where it's like we're not trying to do anything illegal. It's just once you start involving third parties, then it, all bets are off as to what's going to happen. Um, but totally. in any case, um, yeah. So to provide context, one of the concerns with Bitcoin is that once uh, new Bitcoin are not being minted in the mining process, uh, we got to find a way to pay the miners and uh, to provide transaction finality to, to the Bitcoin system. Uh, and obviously in Satoshi's white paper, Satoshi said that we would transition to transaction fees, uh, but he didn't really flesh that out. And it's kind of on us to figure it out and to uh, hypothesize on how we can figure it out. Yeah, so you know the TLDR for those who don't know is that miners are compensated with the block reward, which is comprised of the block subsidy plus transaction fees, the block subsidy being the newly minted Bitcoins. So as that block subsidy decreases over time through the happening events, the transaction fees will have to compensate uh, for that happening. And so the worry is in a, in a far off future, uh, when the block subsidy decreases enough that the transaction fees won't be adequate. So that, that's kind of the TLDR of the argument. TLDR of the argument. Um, and, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I spent four months, probably four months, jamming on this. Um, started with some good foundational work from like Paul Storks, um, uh, Donald McIntyre, um, Tur de Meester, all, you know, I, everything I write is always up. I'm, I'm standing, standing on the shoulders of giants. So I, they're all quoted in the article as well. But uh, essentially wanted to go pick apart a couple different things. One is, you know, what's the proper what's the proper rate of security? Is it stock? You know, Nick Carter has a great piece on, is it stock flow or threshold? You know, what, what is an appropriate amount of security? Um, what are the trends of Bitcoin transaction fees and block subsidy as a percentage of market cap? So as the subsidy continually decreases, are we seeing Bitcoin's annual, uh, annual mining spend or the security increase? And we're seeing that exponentially increase because Bitcoin's price increases as well. And so does usage of the protocol in terms of transaction fees. And so I cover, uh, I cover the section on what is a proper like threshold or a proper amount of security, the uniqueness of Bitcoin's block space is because people argue is Bitcoin's block space unique enough to drive uh, demand for that unique real estate or that prime real estate. I think Paul Stork has like really pushed back on that, and and like it's he sees it as very non-unique, right? Um, yeah. um, there, what's your counter argument to that? Because intuitively people would say like, who cares? Like you could just put data on Litecoin or, you know. Right. It, yeah, so uh, Donald McIntyre did a great job 
of countering this with his uh, rebuttal to Paul's thoughts. And I, I incorporated that and added a few more sections myself. So, you know, when you transact across a block, a when you transact across a block space, that block space, the, the cost to transact across that block space, uh, a couple different costs. One, you have the transaction fee, you have the volatility fee. So when you purchased the crypto asset to the, to the moment where you disposed of it, that volatility that you incurred in that time period, if it's positive, you owe capital gains. If it's negative, you've lost money. And then third, there's a exchange fee. So you have to buy it and sell it. And when you buy and sell it, you have uh, you know at least 10 bips in the US. I don't think anyone has free. So all three of those is how much a transaction costs to transact across a block space. Now, one of those is, is relatively fixed based on the byte size, the size of the transaction in bytes. I think that's the, I think that's somewhat the same across most block spaces. And so people just point at that for Bitcoin and they're like, oh, look how expensive that is. But they don't look at the exchange costs or the uh, volatility cost, which both the exchange and volatility cost have a, have a very nasty problem, which is that they scale with the size of the transaction. And that's super nasty because if you have a $100, let's say dinner that you spend using Litecoin and Litecoin fluctuates 10%, well, that transaction fee isn't just 10 cents on the on the Litecoin blockchain, it's, it's 10 cents plus the $10 of volatility. Um, you know, it moved 10%, let's say it dropped to $90. Now you've lost $10 plus the transaction fee, plus the slip, plus the 10 bips that you paid when you bought the $100 worth of Litecoin. And so, you know, th this was partially to counter the, you know, Roger Verified of like, oh, look at block size, you know, look at transaction fees increasing and Bitcoin losing market dominance. That's not, not the case. Users weren't looking across hundreds of block spaces and simultaneously calculating all of these costs and then transaction and transacting across that block space. So one is that keep in mind, transacting across a block space has a couple different costs and a lot of those scale and a lot of those scale very negatively for other alts other than Bitcoin because other alts are all more volatile than Bitcoin. It's yeah, far more illiquid, right? Their, their order books are right. way thinner. And it's even, I, I think it's worse than what the like market cap dominance shows. I think that if you did oh, a yeah. liquidity dominance, uh, Bitcoin is still like 80, 90%. Exactly. It's just a bunch of new coins being added that are really have really, really shallow, thin order books and have these sort of phantom market caps. So Bitcoin's dominance really wasn't really it, it wasn't eroded as much as they showed it was more of the addition of all these like shit coins that had really really like phantom market caps and uh so roger you know does a, a fake cause and effect there and points at that and goes oh look transaction fees rising market market dominance dropping and it's like no transaction fees rose when speculative activity rose <laughs> you know people yeah, are moving, people all, are moving, yeah. And, and all the alts rose in value as people became more you know more and more speculation yeah and none of these alts like took market share from Bitcoin. Like no. the market was just growing massively and it's you know still growing well, now, but people, it's not. People, yeah, people printed as many coins as would satisfy demand. You want an Uber, a decentralized Uber? Sure, I'll print those. And if you want to buy them, great. Uh, you want a new DAP platform that's faster? Cool, I'll print those. And that seems to be a lot of demand. You know, like EOS and Tron represent that. Right. And so. You know, one, that's a good counter to the transaction fee or like that transaction fees themselves are like just bad alone. We have to incorporate all the other fees when we transact across the block space. 
And then about the uniqueness of the block space, you know, why is Bitcoin's block space prime? So Bitcoin's block space is prime for two of those factors. One, it has less slippage, it's more liquid, and it has uh, lower volatility, which makes it a prime, more prime block space to transact across. It has more security. There's more proof of work securing that block space. So you're more confident in the finality of the transaction. And then there's also a coordination. So users aren't gonna simultaneously hold thousands of cryptocurrencies in their head and choose which one to transact across. They're gonna choose two to three. And so the coordination problem, you know, especially when you have the, a very vocal um, group called Bitcoiners who only wanna transact in Bitcoin, yeah. It's sort of the tyranny of the, uh, you know, as Nassim Taleb puts it, the tyranny of the minority, which I don't think the Bitcoin is the, the minority. But if you refuse to accept any other payment method, it's sort of like monotheistic versus polytheistic religions. Yeah. And if you looked at like a Venn diagram, um, I think that the number of crypto investors who are 0% allocated to Bitcoin and only own altcoins is de minimis. Um, yeah. <laughs> but everyone, so everyone holds a little bit of Bitcoin, even if they fucking hate it. Like they might be like an Ethereum maximalist. Quite a few of them are like, well, look, like I'm 20% Bitcoin, you know, 80% Ethereum. Like that'd be a very aggressive uh, position compared to kind of the index approach. Um, so all that to say yeah. that from a coordination perspective, like the EOS guy and the Ethereum guy are going to have Bitcoin in common. Totally. And, and that's where I felt like, uh, let's see, Alex Sonneborg from Tetris uh, had a really good quote where he said, you know, if one chain becomes the most secure by far, why would the majority of wealth and value, valuable apps not be secured by it? And as more users buy into the more secure chains, their buying pressure will push up the price. The increased price will lead to increased security. From there, eventually the usage, liquidity and network effects will compound on each other, which is what we've seen with Bitcoin. Yeah. So I think that's a really elegant way of saying Bitcoin's real estate or Bitcoin's block space is prime real estate. And we've seen that proven. And so I, I fundamentally reject what Paul was saying there around that all block space is the same. I mean, from just an easy metric is looking at like hash power. Um, do they have the same thermodynamic security that Bitcoin offers? If that's like an easy one that easily refutes that. And I actually ran into Paul at a bar uh, during one of the Bitcoin meetups out here in SF. And we jammed on it. And I, I don't think he spent as much time. I, I think he wrote the blog post, but I'm not sure if he spent a lot of time, a lot, a lot, a lot of time thinking about it. But I really respect what Paul's written about, like proof of work. He had some great pieces on that early in like 15. Um, yeah, so that and then like the transactional demand for that block space, right? Like what will drive transactional demand? I mean, sure, I can create a block space, but if no one wants to spend on it, then it's not really worth anything. Right. Um, and that, that and we see the transactional demand with Bitcoin just so massive with the network effect that it has, with the liquidity that it has, with the security that it has. And then we look at the price elasticity of a Bitcoin transactor as well. You know, the ones who wanted their, their cheap payments for coffee, a lot of them forked off uh, to Bcash and these other cheaper, which they're not cheaper because they have volatility fees and exchange fees. But, you know, no one wants a nuanced, complex argument. They just want to go, oh, fees, expensive. Hmm. And so, you know, in, in this article, I wrote about the price elasticity of a Bitcoin transactor for a store of value asset. So I looked at other store of value assets like gold, uh, fiat wires, real estate, 
and uh, setting up an offshore bank account. And the price elasticity of the, in which, by the way, this is a lot of money. Um, you know, fiat wires in the United States are between $30 and $80 per transaction. That's huge. So that's that's well within like a very, very, um, you know, high, high uh, intensity environment where people are bidding up Bitcoin's block space because they want to get their transaction in there. Um, you know, we, we see people do that every day for their fiat wires. You know, if we look at gold, you have insurance and sometimes like live ammo using you know, as protection to, to have your gold physically delivered. And you know, the Bundesbank, when they took the gold back from the New York Fed, which I think was like $12 billion worth, that took, I think it was like $3 million and no, I think it was a lot higher than that. Yeah, $30 million and like it took three years. Let me look it up because it, it was such a, an egregious amount of time. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, let's see, one second. It, it was a crazy amount of money. Yeah, it took three years and it cost $5 million. Okay. <laughs> and so we, we, take, we take a look at that. We take a look as well at real estate, which is $250 trillion market. And the Chinese alone in the US buy $40 billion annually. And on, on average, those transaction sizes are 440,000. And out of that, you've got closing costs, you have title costs. Oh, one, one cost we did not include on, on the gold transfer to Germany, the cost of full verification, right? Oh, How yeah. much does it cost to make sure that every single bar doesn't have a little bit of tungsten in the middle right. of it, right? Right. Uh, with Bitcoin, man, that's almost free. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, that's a great point. I should, I should have brought that up, but yeah. You know, I solely focused on price elasticity yeah, yeah. because will people pay higher fees in the future is the question I'm trying to answer. Right. And I think we look at like setting up an offshore bank account that's like between two and four thousand dollars, <laughs> and that doesn't even include the cost of the wires that you have to go wire out there, right? Which is eighty bucks. So, and, and there's seven trillion, seventy trillion dollars of offshore deposits. I think. Let's see. Yeah, I think it's a. Uh, yeah. And then have, with yes. Bitcoin, like you get yourself a Trezor. You know, 80 bucks. And uh, then right now, you know, it's, it's crazy. I, I sent a guy a thousand bucks for the beefsteak uh, settling up at the end. And he, I, I, I was like, hey, do you need it right away? He was like, no, just whatever. And so I said it once a toe sheeper bite. It costs a penny to send a thousand dollars today. Right. right. And so it's like, all right. I understand that we should not be advertising that as like, yeah. <laughs> you know the the future UX of it, um, but I also think that you know in in corporate America, in business to business, like big dollar amounts, you have like a month to pay. You you get an invoice and you've got plenty of time. It's not like you need to send it in the next block. And so that alone means that we can have a system where it's like, all right, yeah, it's going to be volatile. You know, sometimes it's going to cost more than other times to send Bitcoin. But if you got a month, then you'll be able to just time that and uh, be able to send it in an affordable manner. Yeah, I mean, by default, marketplaces always self, you know, self equalize. So people will pay whatever they're willing to pay to move a transaction on Bitcoin's blockchain. They're not going to pay unless it's worth it. So, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think we've, we've determined that the price elasticity of Bitcoin's block uh, to transact is very, very, very high. I don't think it'll ever get that high, and that's why I did some modeling at the end, plugging in some some assumptions, 
<laughs> someone's got to take a stab at it. It's very much plugged full of totally, I totally came up with some of these numbers. You have to. There's not really any alternative at this point. But yeah, I, I don't see the scenario. You know, the, all the fear and doubt that we heard around, oh, transactions will be $10,000 or $100,000 transaction fees in the future. I read, <laughs> so these are, this is from like Princeton and Harvard, I think. I mean, this stuff was ridiculous. So there, there are assumptions that they plugged in. Bitcoin's value never increases. Right. <laughs> well, if it doesn't, then it kind of failed. Um, value never increases. Uh, transactional, like a layer one, like byte, a byte size per transaction never decreases through efficiency. Um, they, they kind of ignore lightning. Um, yeah. And as well, you know, this is more controversial. I'm not advocating for a block size increase, but the idea that there is never a block size increase in 120 years may or may not be true. But the other assumptions I would consider pretty dubious. The, the block size, sure, we may not increase it, but who's to say we wouldn't? My, yeah, I mean, my my view for for the block size, uh, which I know is, is is indeed full of controversy, is that we, from a internet bandwidth perspective, we're going from the current status quo of like cable and DSL to fiber, and I think that when fiber is like eighty percent penetration, let's call it, at that point, it's going to be pretty uncontroversial to to at least broach the topic of, hey, let's increase it because now uh, people can keep up with their nodes uh, pretty easily. And I went down the rabbit hole again to kind of refresh my memory as to the arguments. You know, it's about storage, uh, latency, and bandwidth. So it's all three. And, you know, they've done some research to where it's, it's a trade-off, right? You know, you're, you're offloading, you're essentially pushing the cost onto node operators. And so there is there is a reasonable argument to be made around even in the future with fiber, what is like, there, there should be a max limit to where it never gets touched again. So that's the political problem of changing it, right? If you oh, change yeah. it, then it becomes an open topic where you could change it again. I, you know, I hypothesize that in the future, if anyone, if this debate comes up again and the resolution is found, that the resolution would likely look like Bitcoin's issuance schedule. Right. That it would be exponentially declining over time, eventually reaching like a max limit. And that would just be like, look, this max limit is rooted in a ton of research where latency rates just can't get better than this due to like the speed of light you know and, and then what 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 i think the their analysis also misses is things like segwit where you can have uh, a capacity increase without a hard fork right and exactly. so i think that, i think there will be more soft forks that are effective capacity increases some of them might be controversial because of that but um yeah I, it's it, it to me it seems broken given that we have empirical evidence of these things happening, right? Of the value going up, of on-chain capacity going up. Like you can't, as an academic, like honestly say, uh, okay, these things are going to flatline now because yeah. I, don't like, I don't like the history of it. Yeah. I, I don't like that it's been improving. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. I, I would consider it intellectually dishonest. There's no way to say like transactions wouldn't become more efficient on layer one over 120 years. I mean, that's, there's no way you could plug in that variable and for that to be okay. And we already have things where it's like in the foreseeable future with current technology, we're going to be able to do Schnorr signature aggregation. You know, it's it's not like I'm saying like we're going to pull something out of our ass in the far no. future. Like, it's like, we it's just like have horizon. Yeah, it's like in the foreseeable future, as you put it. Yeah. yeah, so that that's where a lot of those numbers were found. And then people took those numbers, especially the Ethereum side, 
and they use that as a false equivalency for Bitcoin. They go, look, Bitcoin hasn't figured out this hypothetical situation, which none of us actually know if it'll be a problem. And all data suggests that it won't. That hypothetical situation that we don't see happening with bad data modeling what happens when that happens <laughs> is essentially that what the whole argument was. Because one of my favorite metrics that I found through this <clears throat> was the transaction fees as a percentage of the block subsidy. That truly tells us, like that's the one core metric. If we were to walk, if we had to pick one KPI to monitor, that's the one that we monitor, right? That eventually has to reach 100%. Mm, and we right. see it, we see it very much trending in the right direction, and intuitively so. As the block reward drops in, or as the block subsidy drops in half with the happening events, that causes causes a supply shock, and we've seen a subsequent bubble, uh, you know, in the preceding months after, or months or years after, and we've seen that happen uh, with the sixteen uh, and the uh, twelve happening events. And so we might see that again after 2020. And I, I, I think we will because that reduces the amount of forced selling that hits the market daily. And, you know, essentially Bitcoin stock to flow decreases. And so when that, when that happens, um, that creates a supply shock, which has a speculative bubble, which brings around more and more believers and hodlers and users and, and liquidity, which AKA means more transactions. And we've seen that through time. We've seen transaction fees as a percentage of the block subsidy increase exponentially during bubbles, which for a brief period of time in 2017, block the transaction fees were greater than the block sub subsidy and a block reward. So we saw it briefly broach it. And so it's gonna come in these sort of like wave cycles, right? Where it's not gonna be this nice linear path where it eventually it takes all, you know, it becomes greater than the block subsidy. Over time, we've seen it level up seen it level up over and over. I think that we also are kind of on an event horizon where blocks are always full and that we have a permanent backlog in the mempool. Um, and that at that point, then I think we'll, it's, it's like a phase transition, right? It's not, it's not just that um, the, the ratio is going to improve. I think that it's going to just like hop up where... Now, uh, once the, the, the mempool has a backlog and let's say it's like $5 per transaction or something, like that would be a massive amount of, of revenue for, for miners. Yeah, I mean, the mempool, you know, having a backlog of transactions is a good thing because we can predict future demand for that block space. And, you know, there could be all sorts of like block space futures created where people can you know, you, you can stabilize how much you might pay in a transaction fee or, or different services can help you work with that by purchasing. So I would argue that uh, lightning transactions are uh, block space derivatives, essentially. A little bit, yeah, because the opening and closing of a lightning channel reflects like you, you've already opened a channel. It's your choice when yeah. to do it, uh, if you've got a good peer uh, that's not force closing on you. Um, yeah, and that's, I, you know, I'd like to use this moment to address a piece of FUD where a lot of people go, oh, well, Lightning might suck away transactional demand on layer one, and that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's Jevons' paradox. As things become more and more efficient, we use more of it. We've seen that with cars, car mileage, like mile per gallon, increasing the amount of miles driven. So as Lightning brings around greater and greater in number of transaction fees on layer two, 
those transaction fees on layer two require the opening and closing of a channel on layer one. And we've seen some of these uh, block, we've seen some of these blocks that have had 25% of the block is full of opening and closing lightning channels. So lightning I've, never, I've never made so many on-chain transactions myself uh, in, in my years in Bitcoin until uh, these past like six months of being on lightning and having a, a routing day. <laughs> Yeah, the, the instantaneous payment's really, really fun. Um, the, the really low fees are great. You know, I but feel to, to me, it was like about like, I'm going to open channels now because it's going to be more expensive in the future. So it's right. like an investment, not even that I'm going to be like personally, you know, sending value around on Lightning, um, but just as, as a, an investment in, in future block space. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you're opening up a channel now in anticipation of like the transaction transaction fees in layer one increasing. Yeah, they did the derivative. We'll see how that pans out. I don't know that it's necessarily a good entrepreneurial strategy because there's <laughs> going to be so many improvements to Lightning. Like eventually, you know, you're going to have um, Lightning with uh, Taproot and it's going to be much more efficient on chain. And so then right. it's going to be like, all right, well, maybe I need to close my legacy channels and open up these new Taproot channels that are a lot better or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's a fantastic article and uh, I'll put it in the show notes so that our listeners can go check it out and um, see all these beautiful, beautiful graphs that you put together. Oh, thank you. That was done by On Wonder on Twitter. He's a really great uh, data visualization guy and helped me out with this. So props to him. But, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time sketching it out and thinking through how the data might look. And I built these in Excel. But they weren't as pretty. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to to have a, a, a data visualization guy who can really uh, spruce it up. And so I'll, I'll make sure to include a link to him as well so that people follow him on Twitter and uh, see you know what his latest content is. Perfect. That'd be great. Yeah, you know, I encourage everyone to don't trust Verify. Go read through, go go pick apart my argument. You know, I, I it took a long time to kind of comprehensively address this, and I, I do apologize for the 63 tweet tweet storm. That was my best attempt at shortening this argument uh, or shortening my, my content down to a more digestible format. But this is really comprehensive. It took a lot. Uh, this was the hardest article I've ever written in terms of how many different rabbit holes you had to go down. Well, I'd argue this is like one of the most important articles that has been written by anyone in Bitcoin because it cuts to a like a fundamental issue, which is that if if you're wrong and we have to have permanent inflation, that's yeah. a huge problem for Bitcoin. Okay. Um, and not it's it's kind of what we were discussing with the block size limit of like, all right, well, what percentage or what you know what block reward change is appropriate? Everyone's going to have an opinion on it, and it would be a huge problem for Bitcoin. And that's my next article is around Bitcoin's monetary policy awesome. or why choosing an inflation rate is impossible, just like you said. Fantastic. Because, yeah, it truly is. I mean, how do you possibly quantify trillions of data points, ingest those, and then decide what an appropriate rate of inflation is? Uh, well, you get a PhD from Princeton, right? <laughs> yes, of course. They, they know, of course. Proof yeah. of PhD. Exactly. All right. It was really fun to have you on, Dan. Uh, I think we could go on for like a few more hours, but uh, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on East Coast time, so I got to get to bed. Yeah. Understood. Well, hey, great, glad to hang out and uh, we'll definitely have a few beers and, and chat on this further when you're at NSF. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Bye. Cheers. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. 
And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Those are famous lines, and that's sort of Christ the hippie, right? It's like, hey, let it all hang out. That's an old phrase. Do your thing, and everything will come to you. And these lines have been interpreted in that manner many times. But that's seriously not the proper interpretation. Because there's a kicker with this injunction. And the kicker is this. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's a lot different than the hippie thing. Right? Because the, there's a very, very, very interesting idea here. It's, it's certainly one of the most profound ideas that I've ever encountered. Um, and the idea is this, is that if you configure your life so that what you are genuinely doing is aiming at the highest possible good, then the things that you need to, to survive and to thrive on a day-to-day -day basis will deliver themselves to you. That's a hypothesis. And it's not some simple hypothesis, right? Because it, what it basically says is, if you dare to do the most difficult thing that you can conceptualize, your life will work out better than it will if you do anything else. Well, how are you going to find out if that's true? Well, it's a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. There's no way you're going to find out whether or not that's true unless you do it. So, no, no one can tell you either, because just because it works for someone else, I mean, that's interesting and all that, but it's no proof that it'll work for you. You have to be all in in this game. And so the idea is, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's like, that's actually a fairly important caution when you're talking about not having to pay attention to what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. It's like, what it's essentially saying is that those problems are trivial in comparison. And the probability is that if you manifest yourself properly in the world, that those things will come your way is extraordinarily high. And I believe, I believe that that's exactly right. I mean, I, I've, I've watched people operate in the world, and I would say that there is no more effective way of operating in the world than to conceptualize the highest good that you can and then strive to attain it. There's no more practical pathway to the kind of success that you could have if you actually knew what success was. And so that's what this, that's what this sermon is attempting to, to posit. It's like in, in the story of Pinocchio, you know, what happens at the beginning of the story of Pinocchio is that Geppetto wishes on a star. We talked about that a little bit. And so what Geppetto does is align himself with the metaphorical manifestation of the highest good he can conceptualize. And say, he says, he, he, makes, a, he makes a commitment, let's say, he aims at the star. And for him the star is the possibility that he can take his creation, a puppet, Right, whose strings are being pulled by unseen forces and have it transform into something that's autonomous and real. Well, that's a hell of an ambition. 
You know, and we're wise enough to put that in a children's movie, but too foolish to understand what it means. It's such an interesting juxtaposition that, that we can both know that and not know it at the same time. You can go to the movie, you can watch it and it makes sense, but that doesn't mean that you can go home and think, well, I know what that meant. Well, people are complicated, right? We exist at different levels and all the levels don't communicate with one another, but, but the movie is a hypothesis and the hypothesis is there's no better pathway to self-realization and the ennoblement of being than to posit the highest good that you can conceive of and commit yourself to it. And then you might also ask yourself, and this is definitely worth asking, is do you really have anything better to do? And if you don't, well, why would you do anything else? Therefore, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I spent a long time trying to figure out what that meant too, because it's another one of those lines that can easily be read as pro-grasshopper and anti-ant, you know? You remember the old fable of the grasshopper and the ant? Maybe not. I'm not going to tell it, but... The ant works and the grasshopper fiddles and the ant has a pretty good time in the winter and the grasshopper dies. And so, this is like a pro-grasshopper line, but it's not because it says something else. It says that if you orient yourself properly, and then pay attention to what you do every day, that works. And it, I actually think that that's in accordance with, with what we have come to understand about human perception, because what happens is that the world shifts itself around your aim. Because you're, you're a creature that has an aim. You have to have an aim in order to do something. You're an aiming creature. You look at a point and you move towards it. It's built right into you. And so, you have an aim. Well, let's say your aim is the highest possible aim. Well then, so that sets up the world around you. It, it organizes all of your perceptions. It organizes what you see and you don't see. It organizes your emotions and your motivations. So you organize yourself around that aim. And then what happens is, the day manifests itself as a set of challenges and problems. And if you solve them properly, then you stay on the pathway towards that aim. And you can concentrate on the, on the, on the day. And so that way you get to have your cake and eat it too. Because you can... You can point into the distance, the far distance, and you can live in the day. And it seems to me that that's, that makes every moment of the day supercharged with meaning. That, that's how, because if everything that you're doing every day is related to the highest possible aim that you can conceptualize, well, that's the very definition of the meaning that would sustain you in your life. Well, and then the issue is, well, back to Noah. Well, all hell's about to break loose and chaos is coming. It's like when that's happening in your life, you might want to be doing something that you regard as truly worthwhile. Because that's what will keep you afloat when, when everything is flooded. And you don't want to wait until the flood comes to start doing that. Because if your ark's half built and you don't know how to captain it, the probability is very high that, that you'll drown.